welcome to another special episode of 13. These are our shorter episodes where we give a Colgate faculty member the floor to talk about their most recent publication. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today we'll be hearing from Professor of Political Science, Robert Cranin. Now, before I get started, I'd like to share a little housekeeping note. The podcast will be taking a holiday break for the rest of the month, and we will return with our first episode of the new year on January 11th. I hope all of our listeners have a happy and healthy holiday season. And now, on to the show. Professor Kranak specializes in classical and medieval political philosophy, modern political philosophy, and American political theory. His published works include History and Modernity in Thought of Thomas Hobbes, published by Cornell Press, Christian Faith and Modern Democracy, published by Notre Dame Press, In Defense of Human Dignity, edited with Glenn Tinder, also from Notre Dame Press, and Reason, Faith, and Politics, edited by Arthur M. Meltzer, and that is from Lexington Press. Professor Cranach is the director of Colgate Center for Freedom and Western Civilization, and in 2006, he received the Colgate Alumni Corporation Distinguished Teaching Award. Professor Cranach earned his bachelor's degree from Cornell University and his PhD from Harvard University. His current research project is a book titled Natural Law and Social Justice in Thomistic Political Philosophy, which is a study of Thomas Aquinas' idea of natural law a higher moral law for politics, and its development by later Thomists called Neo-Thomists. Professor Kranak, welcome to 13. Thank you very much, Dan, for inviting me and giving me this opportunity to discuss my research with the Colgate community. Uh, As you mentioned, I am writing a book right now called Natural Law and Social Justice in Thomistic Political Philosophy. And what I mean by that is the political philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas, who we know lived way back in the 13th century, and also his many followers who developed Thomas Aquinas' ideas over the centuries. In other words, I cover Thomism from the 13th century up into the 21st century, up into something called the New Natural Law by a scholar named John Finnis. So I'd like to begin really very simply by asking this question, why is this topic important and interesting for us today? And what I'd like to say right at the beginning here is that it has significance for two groups of people. First of all, for citizens and statesmen who are debating the meaning of justice, and especially who are using the term today, social justice. So that's one audience for my book. And the second one, of course, is scholars, people who have been debating and writing about Thomas Aquinas for centuries. In the Catholic intellectual tradition, because Thomas Aquinas is really the unofficial great theologian of the Catholic Church, but also, as I will discuss, many non-Catholics who have been influenced by Thomas Aquinas including, for example, Martin Luther King, in the American tradition, which many people are not aware that he was influenced by Aquinas. Hmm. So in other words, my book is written partly for practical people, citizens and statesmen, who obviously are concerned with the question of what do we mean by justice, and especially by social justice. 
And here, and then the second group of scholars I'll talk about more and get into some of the scholastic arguments, which I hope will not bore people. I'll try to present them in the clearest possible way. Let me begin with the first group of people, citizens and statesmen. And, and here's a really basic question. Where do they get their ideas of justice? Where did we get the term social justice, which is probably the most commonly used phrase today when people are discussing politics, when they are making laws, and especially today when they are protesting unjust laws? And <clears throat> where did they get these ideas? And the answer is something called higher law, which Dan mentioned in the introduction. And what do we mean by a higher law? We mean something like an ideal, which people believe truly exists, even though it's not written down anywhere, it's kind of invisible, that stands above the established laws and customs of the land. In other words, a higher moral law, which is above what philosophers call the positive law, which means the established law, that tells them what the true meaning of justice is. And also, and here's the crucial point, this higher law is what justifies obedience to the existing law if it conforms to higher law. But it also justifies civil disobedience and even revolution when people feel that the established positive law goes against the higher moral law. Now, when you start studying this question of the higher law, which is really an amazing, powerful, and important topic, in politics and especially philosophy of law, which I also teach, you'll typically find that there are two sources of higher law. And the, and the most common one people know, and that's divine law, meaning the law of God that comes from the Bible or from scripture, and which is ultimately based on divine revelation. I mean, how many times have we heard the phrase, I'm going to obey God rather than man, or I'm appealing to a higher authority? And when it's a religious authority, they're appealing to what is called higher law, understood as divine law. And of course, the classic example of this is the Ten Commandments. But it's also in the New Testament, the law of love that Jesus spoke about in the Gospels. So when people either agree or disagree or try to or disobey an existing positive law in the name of divine law or religious law, they say they're appealing to a law that they have gotten from God. That's the most common form and the most well-known. But the second kind is when people appeal to natural law. So I want to talk a little bit about what that term means and why that actually is um, so important. And what they mean by natural law is a law that doesn't come from divine revelation, but comes from human reason. Sometimes they'll say natural reason, meaning as a natural basis to it rather than a supernatural basis. But also it's called natural law because it's grounded in human nature, the nature of man. And sometimes it'll even be said in the natural order of things or the natural order of the world. Hmm. So it's a natural law because it's derived from reason and it's understood to be ultimately grounded in human nature or the natural order of things. Now, natural law, which is really the subject of my book rather than divine law, is actually harder to understand the divine law. And the simple reason why is because it's unwritten. Where do you find this natural law? You can't go to the Ten Commandments, and of course you can't go to human law, which is the, like the written constitution. It has to be discovered somewhere. 
It's and sometimes people even say it's kind of an intuition of an ideal. I just feel in my gut that there's something unjust or cruel about this law. But how do I know that it is unjust or cruel? Because I have an intuition based something both on my conscience and on my reason that it goes against the very essence of what it means to be a human being. That there's something that by virtue of a human being establishes a certain notion of justice in the nature of man. Now, what's tricky is having given these two kinds of higher law, divine law and natural law, they often overlap. And in fact, most versions of natural law are ultimately not only grounded in human nature, but in God-given human nature. Because if you ask the question, where did nature come from? Most people will say it came from the creator, right? And so they'll actually refer to God-given natural law, because God is ultimately the source of nature. But that doesn't change the fact that the natural law, even though it comes from God, the author, is still essentially knowable by reason rather than by divine revelation. Okay, let me just illustrate this to bring it down to earth a little bit, right? The two most famous examples of natural law, believe it or not, as a kind of higher moral law, are right here in our American tradition. And the most famous and most influential is the Declaration of Independence. Many people are not aware that if you look at the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, it says that the colonists are rebelling against the King of England and against the Parliament in the name of what they call the laws of nature and of nature's God. So mm -hmm. laws of nature is just another word for natural law. And then nature, since it's created by God, they're called the laws of nature and nature's God. And of course, what that particular natural law teaches is that human beings, right, all men are created equal in the sense that they have certain inalienable rights, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And the argument of the declaration is that God put these rights into our human nature. And of course, Jefferson said they are self-evident to reason. They can be known by studying our common humanity. That's actually the most famous example that Americans know of a higher moral law called natural law. It's not derived from Thomas Aquinas, however. It has sources more in the Enlightenment, John Locke and other Enlightenment figures, but it gives us an idea of why this, where this language comes from in America. The second most famous example, maybe people aren't aware of this, is actually from Martin Luther King. If you've ever read his letter from a Birmingham jail, you will see, I'm going to read a brief excerpt from it in a moment to you, that it's not only does he appeal to a higher moral law called natural law, but he also specifically mentions Thomas Aquinas, unlike the Declaration of Independence. Mm -hmm. And of course, he led the civil rights movement, and they made the argument that civil disobedience to unjust laws is justified by appealing to natural law and also divine law. They actually combined the two which makes it a little bit more complicated. But let me read uh, the central passage from his famous letter from a Birmingham jail to give you the idea uh, and to show you the link actually with Aquinas. Martin Luther King says the following. <clears throat> How do we know whether it's justified to obey, disobey a law? How does one determine whether a law is just or unjust? And he says, a just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law or the law of God. An unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. 
to put it in terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal law and in natural law. And then he goes on to make the argument that this, this idea of an eternal and natural law is the grounding for the appeal to a higher authority and the basis of the civil disobedience that he's practicing. Okay, so this gives us the idea of the general topic of the book, right? People have actually always believed in the notion that there is some kind of higher authority above the written existing established law of the land. Divine law is the most well-known, but natural law has also been there, and it's actually a very American thing. It also turns out it's also part of many other traditions besides the American tradition, such as the Catholic tradition. And what I try to do is to explain in general what, what natural law is and how it's connected with our ideas of justice. But I also want to assess it, that is to say, to show the ways in which there's a positive influence of the appeal to higher law. But there's also negative influences. And in fact, natural law has been blamed for anarchy. <laughs> because mm -hmm. when someone says, well, I'm disobeying this law, and I'm using it to justify either rebellion, or it's also been used to justify terrorism and revolution. And Thomas Hobbes was an English philosopher who was the greatest critic of natural law. He said, actually, anyone who appeals above the will of the sovereign is inviting anarchy by appealing to a higher moral law. So actually, natural law has a kind of complex history uh, with both positives and negatives about it. Okay, that's the practical side. Do you want to stop there and ask me a question, Dan? I do. You mentioned new natural law in the beginning, too. How yeah. is that different from, from you know, natural law? Okay, very good. It's a, it's a development. I'll get to that in a moment when I talk about the five periods of Thomistic natural law. Okay. And the most recent one is they just coined that phrase, the new natural law, to give it a kind of pizzazz. You know, we're the latest version gotcha. of this old thing called Thomistic natural law. I'll try to explain that in a moment. Okay. So my book really tries to just focus on one school of higher law, the natural law of Thomas Aquinas and his followers. And what I try to do, and I think this is part of my original contribution, is that I make the argument that if you study all of the philosophers and theologians who have called themselves followers of Aquinas, Thomists and Neo-Thomists, then it basically breaks down into five historical periods and five different versions of Thomistic natural law um, from the 13th century to the 21st century. And I'll discuss those five periods in a moment. And what, I, what I'm going to try to do is to show that in one of these periods, the third period, something new emerges, a new phrase emerges called social justice, which is actually really a term invented by Italian neo-Thomas Thomas of the 1840s. So not only are people sometimes unaware of the importance of natural law, they're often unaware of the influence of Thomas Aquinas, especially of his followers who literally coined the phrase la justizia sociale in Italian, from which we get the English term social justice. Hmm. So part of my argument is to divide it into five periods and to explain how in the third period, Thomistic natural law produces a spin-off term called social justice, which people are still using today. Then I also try to explain its influence on Catholic teaching and on non-Catholic teaching, not only on Martin Luther King 
but also on scholars and movements of the 21st century. And we may not even be aware, for example, that the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights, written in 1948, also was a spin-off of Thomistic natural law, influenced by Jacques Maritain, who was a French neo-Thomist. Okay, that's a mouthful. But that's an attempt to show you the broader significance of how this has shaped not only Catholic thinking and Thomistic thinking, but other movements. And then finally, as I said, what I try to do is assess the influence of all of this, which is kind of a, a judgment call, right? The positives and the negatives, and to show in particular how, and this is kind of the most controversial part, how natural law and social justice has actually been transformed in a way that its original intenders probably would have been upset by, and that the current usage of the term social justice as a type of higher law is actually quite different than the way it was used in the 1840s by the Italian neo-Thomists. And there's good reason to think that the Italian neo-Thomists of the 1840s had a better understanding of both human nature and natural law. And therefore, our social justice activists today could learn something from studying the Thomistic tradition. <laughs> so that's part of my controversial conclusion. All right, now let me talk briefly about the five periods. The five periods of Thomistic natural law, my, my scheme, you might say, for organizing scheme for the book, is first of all, Thomas Aquinas himself, writing in the 1260s, the 13th century. Uh, and he based his concept of natural law on Aristotle primarily. And he thought that natural law uh, taught people that they should, the basis of justice is the common good, which he understood primarily uh, to be exemplified in a constitutional monarchy. The second great period is in the 1500s, where certain Spanish neo-scholastics uh, neo named Francisco de Vitoria and Francisco Suarez developed Thomas Aquinas's thought and applied it to the problems of their times. And the most famous example of this is this guy, Vitoria, who applied Thomistic natural law to the Spanish colonization and conquest of the American Indians, hmm. the Native Americans, we say today. Okay. And he made the argument that based on Thomistic natural law, the Spanish colonization and conquest of the Native American Indians was unjust based on the higher law, the natural law of, of Thomism. And, and, he, and some people look at him actually as a forerunner of modern human rights. Um, and there's some truth to that. But, but actually, uh, Victoria thought the most important human right uh, was ultimately uh, the right to preach religion and to proselytize peacefully to the Native American Indians. So on the one hand, he was, an, he was a defender of the Native American Indians in the name of Thomistic natural law. But on the other hand, he still thought it was good to bring Christian missionaries uh, to the Americas so that they could learn um, Christianity. The third group of neo-Thomas is the 19th century. Um, and here's where these Italian neo-Thomists actually play such an important role. And their two names are a guy named Tapparelli, Luigi Tapparelli, and Antonio Rosmini. And they're the guys who actually invented the term social justice in Italian, la justizia sociale. And their idea was that Thomism was essentially correct, but it had to be updated to address what they called the social question of the day. And the social question actually had two parts to it. One of it was the social class warfare that came out of the French Revolution. And the other was the social class conflicts coming out of modern industrial society. 
So they thought that the term justice, which grew out of natural law, needed an adjective in front of it, social, to comprehend the entire social nature of man in both the social classes of human beings, but also the social problems of human beings. And the main thing they stressed, however, which is different from the contemporary understanding of social justice, is that they thought that social justice had two sides to it. One was human equality. Everyone had certain basic human rights by virtue of being human. But they also thought that it included legitimate inequalities, which they got from Aristotle, that those people who contributed more to society deserved more in return. And that's called proportional justice. So in their view, social justice had two sides to it, justified equality, but also justified inequality. And that together made up social justice. Then the fourth school was called Personalism by Jacques Maritain. And that was extremely influential uh, in the 20th century because he coined the phrase or developed the phrase, the dignity of the human person, the rights and dignity of the human person, which had a very powerful influence on the Second Vatican Council in Catholic uh, church teaching. It also influenced many of the popes that followed uh, uh, Mary Ten. Um, and he's the one who, he, he also kind of updated the term social justice to include workers' rights. Finally, and this is what Dan asked him before, there's the fifth school called the New Natural Law by a scholar out of Notre Dame and Oxford named John Finnis. And what they meant by the new natural law is that it had to be grounded in something that they call practical reason rather than simply based on human nature. And they also developed a, I would put it this way, a stronger notion of the moral absolutism of justice. So those are the five schools I talk about. And then the sixth part of my book is all of the spin-offs from both Thomistic natural law and the social justice movement, the ways in which it was carried on and to some degree even misunderstood and distorted. And then in my conclusion, I give both, as I said, both a positive and a negative assessment and make the argument that natural law and social justice are both absolutely indispensable as guides in politics, but they're also much more dangerous and problematic than people are aware of. And they have to be grounded in, in a true notion of both what human nature is and something that I call the limits of politics. And that's kind of the gist of the book as a whole. That's fascinating. So let me stop there and just any follow-up questions that might help the audience clarify. I, you know, I was fascinated by the one, um, uh, and I, I would absolutely butcher their names, but the philosophers that talked about the, um, the equality and the, the natural uh, human uh, equality, uh, but also then the natural inequality. Yes, that's right. And how can you believe in both? It seems like they're two widely, you know, disparate things. Yeah, very good. Okay. But they aren't in a way, right? Because something like this, if I were to ask you, are human beings basically equal or unequal? And you would say something like this. On the one hand, they seem to be basically equal because there is something called our common humanity. We can recognize a human being as a human being, as distinguished from other animals and other parts of the universe, right? Both the other animals they call them the lower animals, um, you know, in a hierarchical. But also, so, so you can recognize common humanity and you can recognize something called an inherent human dignity that human beings have, okay? But they, then they made the argument that, look, 
no human being simply lives in the abstract. They also live in particular social organizations and political organizations. And every social and political organization is actually really a hierarchy of some kind. The family is a hierarchy in which parents are unequal over their children, right? Every organization, whether it's Colgate University with its hierarchical structure, and it's much more hierarchical than people actually like to admit because we have all the social justice warriors preaching equality, but we live in a hierarchical institution, right? And some people are, get paid more and have more power and more influence. Every institution, when you look at it, has a, has a, a structure, a political and hierarchical structure. And the question becomes then, is it, a, is it a just hierarchy or an unjust hierarchy? And they made the argument based on Aristotle's notion of proportional justice, that the formula for rewarding some people with more should be based on their contribution. Proportional justice, they, they said, was rewarding people in proportion to the contribution that they make to society or to the particular organization. So it's justified to pay some people more or to give them more power and prestige if legitimately they are making a genuine contribution to that organization. And, you know, in America, sometimes we call that meritocracy. So, I mean, Americans believe both in equality and they believe in the principle of equality, but they also believe in justified inequalities. And the debate is usually about what's the difference between a justified and an unjustified inequality. If it's just, you know, if it's arbitrary or it's based on an irrelevant characteristic, we, we would say it's unjust, right? But the notion that some people contribute more and therefore deserve more in return is the basis of Aristotelian proportional justice. So Taparelli and Rosmini said you need both. You need a basic baseline of humanity, of equal rights and equal dignity. But you must also recognize, by the way, they felt that social harmony would not be served if you simply dispossessed all those people of have greater wealth or greater status, like in the French Revolution. That would not be justice either. Partly they were reacting to the French Revolution and the excesses of equality, right, where they sent people to the guillotine just because they were aristocrats. Um, but partly they were just thinking through the whole problem of justice. Justice has elements in it of legitimate equality, but also legitimate inequality when you think about different contributions. So that's, that was the argument. And my claim is that the social justice warriors of today kind of forget the second part, even though in their own lives they practice it. Well, Professor Kranak, thank you yeah. so much for joining us today. That was another special episode of 13. Make sure to tell your friends and family about the podcast and let us know how we're doing. Also, let us know what you think about this new special episode format. You can email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number, with your thoughts or ideas. Uh, and let us know if there's any other questions or topics that you'd like us to explore. I'm sure we can find a professor on campus to, to help out. Um, thanks again, Professor Kranak, for joining us. And as always, keep asking questions. is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit colgatemagazine.com 
at colgateresearchmagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.